This president's done more for bipartisanship in the last eight days than Obama did in eight years. He's a real estate developer, right? There's no R's and D's in real estate. We think we made a very reasonable and strong argument. And to his credit, he went with the better argument. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the podcast where we discuss Donald Trump and anything that might be related to him. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. Last week, Donald Trump bucked Republican leaders and shocked Washington by supporting a short-term budget deal crafted by Democrats. It was a blow to partisan governance, and it led several observers, including the New York Times and the Associated Press, to label the president an independent unmoored from the two-party system itself. If the test for independence is merely a willingness to buck or attack one's party, then Trump isn't independent. But it's not that simple. Look at his presidency so far. He endorsed both Republican bills to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. He asked Congress to slash the social safety net, cutting food stamps and other forms of assistance. He nominated a hard-right conservative to the Supreme Court and has made upper-income tax cuts a priority of his administration. If one looks at presidential politics as mainly a story of individuals, then Trump is a kind of independent whose alliance with Republican leaders is tenuous and opportunistic. But this discounts his relationship with the Republican Party as a whole. Trump is the leader of the party, and by virtue of this is inextricably tied to the party infrastructure. But he is an awkward fit, which means he doesn't always speak or act like a typical Republican president, even if he often governs like one. We're going to speak to Julia Azari, a political scientist at Marquette University, about Trump and his relationship to the GOP. But first, I want to plug our live shows. Next Saturday, the 23rd, we'll be at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin. Come join me, Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and an excellent cast of guests as we tackle all things Trump. And if you miss us in Texas, you can catch us in San Francisco on Tuesday, November the 14th, where we'll be talking Trump at the Norse Theater. You can get tickets for both events at slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. We'll have our conversation in a moment, but first, a few tweets. Fascinating to watch people writing books and major articles about me. And yet they know nothing about me and have zero access. Hashtag fake news. The approval process for the biggest tax cut and tax reform package in the history of our country will soon begin. Move fast, Congress. Congratulations to Eric and Laura on the birth of their son, Eric Luke Trump, this morning. I will be traveling to Florida tomorrow to meet with our great Coast Guard, FEMA, and many of the brave first responders and others. With Irma and Harvey, devastation, tax cuts, and tax reform is needed more than ever before. Go Congress, go. To talk about Donald Trump's relationship to the Republican Party, 
We're joined by Julia Azari, a professor of political science at Marquette University and contributor to 538 and Vox.com. Hi, Julia. Welcome to Trumpcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is just a piece uh, you have recently at Vox. Uh, and I want to ask you about it because I feel like we've been um, a bit simpatico in, in how we're how we're like observing this political moment. And the headline of the piece is presidency sometimes changed course. Trump's hasn't so far. And you discuss sort of Trump's relationship with the Republican Party and how that has how that his has defined this presidency so far. So could you just talk a little bit about the the observations, the arguments you make in that piece? Okay, yeah. So the, the argument I've been making since before the election is that the really the defining feature on the Republican side is especially is a is a weak party strong partisanship situation. And I think this really shapes what we can expect from Trump with the Republican Party. So on the on the one hand, the way we typically talk about parties, what we really mean is partisanship. And that is the the ideas and the kind of uh, idea loyal idea based loyalties maybe, negative partisanship, dislike of the other party. Um that's all to me that's partisanship. And I think that's what drove that's what got Trump into the White House is ultimately Republican loyalty and also the power of some of the ideas that he expressed with a particular core set of voters in the Republican Party. Um, on the other hand, you've got parties, right? The organization, relationship, and that's where Trump obviously is is weird. Um, he kind of stands out. He was not the choice of pretty much any Republican elites through the early part of the nomination season. And he doesn't have these longstanding relationships with them because he hasn't been a member of a you know federal federal government government or governor of a state, the kinds of typical relationships that we see between between presidents and their parties. So I think there's there's two things going on there. And in order to get the whole story, we have to look a little bit at both. I think it's worth here taking a moment to do what's called an explanatory comma for listeners, because I think we're going to discuss parties in a way that isn't immediately intuitive. Um, you know, when I when I when I'm using the term in this conversation, I like you, I think I'm thinking of both elected lawmakers and, and the organizations like the RNC and the uh, Republican, you know, senatorial commission and so and so on and so forth, but also various party actors and elites, activists, members of interest groups with tight relationships with the Republican Party, sort of the entire network of of people kind of associated with the Republican Party. Yeah, I think that's that's a typical way to define that, certainly among political scientists, and it seems like that's kind of caught on among journalists, or maybe you guys were doing that all along. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, that's that's right. I think that there's a little bit of, um, and there's a little bit of a question to me about the differences in those kinds of actors, interest groups, media. There's a big question um, that that I often am addressing with other political scientists about whether Fox News is part of the Republican Party. I kind of describe it as part of the, the partisan mix, or I've been calling it the partisan state, which is is not a word that's going to win me any friends. <laughs> um, but you know, I have I have mixed feelings about that definition, but I'm certainly you know happy to to entertain it and think about it for the sake of the argument. Um, well, I, I'm actually I'm I'm curious. What are your mixed feelings about it? To me, the question of of Fox News or of a group like the NRA or a pro life group, um, 
is that those groups in, you know, in theory are not necessarily part of a particular team. And in a situation where the parties were less distinct and cohesive on different issues, those groups might be, the lobbying groups in particular, might be trying to influence members of both parties. And I think, you know, you actually do see that when you look beneath the, the surface particularly with with the NRA. And so I think it's useful to have a conceptual distinction between, okay, who are the people who are in the business of being team blue or team red? And then who are the people who are in the business of particular kinds of ideas or particular values, ideologies, or policies? And that's where I break with a lot of my co-bloggers over at Mischief's Affection on Vox. They have this network parties perspective, and I have some, as I said, mixed feelings. I think there are useful things that come out of that, but I don't think it's the most clear definition of parties. So we have this figure who is president or became the nominee as president in part just because of partisanship, but because he has none of these ties to the Republican Party or any of the networks associated with it, it seems to have made his ability to actually govern or even lead the Republican Party difficult. Right. I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean part of it is you think about these relationships, how does the president have you know, in the last century or so, presidents kind of have carved out their own independent sources of political support. They're not as dependent on parties, but members of their parties often are more are dependent on them, right? This person, the president, presidential candidate, fundraised for me. This person campaigned with me on the stump. And there's this idea that presidents might have what political scientists call coattails um, that help bring a majority of their party or help elect members of Congress, governors from their party. Um, the consensus seems to be that Trump really didn't have coattails. Um, and that, you know, many Republican members of his party, like Ron Johnson, the senator here in Wisconsin, ran ahead of Trump in Wisconsin. So there aren't as many members of Congress who are really are going to owe Trump, you know, favors from, from 15 years ago, because he's this old, long-standing member of the party. That's just not there. Yet at the same time, the Republican Republican constituency in the electorate still is the the constituency that approves of Trump and that approves of the direction he's taking the country. His popularity is very low among Democrats. So while the elite relationships aren't there, the political incentives on the ground in terms of what these, you know, what the constituents of members of Congress think are still are very typical and normal of what you might see in our very polarized era. One thing I've I'm sort of interested in is Trump doesn't seem to be the first president to kind of occupy this position, to have have his presidency, his place in party leadership because of partisanship, but to have this really awkward fit with the party itself and, and the party coalition. What immediately comes to mind for me is Jimmy Carter. Is there anything that kind of connects the two? Is there any reason why figures such as, such as these uh, get to the, 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 the level of party leadership, aside from kind of the the very contingent factors, but are there any commonalities there? Yeah, so this is this is my favorite question. This is um, something a lot of us who are writing in kind of on the the border of political science and journalism, a lot of bloggers have been writing about. And this is a theory a very well known political scientist named Steve Skoranek, who's also one of my grad school advisors, uh, who's written this theory. It basically argues that that political it's political time goes in this kind of cycle and a coalition comes into to power with a president with an FDR or a Reagan 
and you have this set of ideas, you have this set of political relationships, and then those ideas kind of run their course. And at the end, you often get a president who is disconnected from some of the main kind of, you know, the, the main relationships of that party, or even sometimes it's its main ideas. And so he, you know, he argues, he puts in this category, as you get the presidents leading up to the Civil War, Pearson Buchanan, Herbert Hoover, um, and Jimmy Carter, that all are really in some ways not just the kind of bad leaders that people assume that they are, but that really the problem is they're in this impossible political situation. And a number of us have been writing about whether Trump occupies this position as well. But one of the things that I pointed out in my Vox piece that I I haven't seen anyone else say is that there's this consistent feature with these presidents where on the one hand, there are these kind of weird outsiders. Um, Carter comes in as this one-term governor of Georgia. Um, Hoover, not exactly an outsider, but someone who had most of his career was kind of an administration rather than elective politics. Franklin Pierce came out of being a lawyer. He had retired and was a lawyer in New Hampshire. Um, so they're these weird outsiders. But they once they're president, they're really dependent on a couple of core ideas or relationships from that party because they're so unmoored. In some ways, it kind of drives them into the arms of some aspect of that party's base. And I think we really see that with Trump, where on the one hand, he's got this kind of independent political persona and identity. And then on the other hand, as soon as he became, really became president-elect, we started to see a tight relationship forming between him and certain elements of movement conservatism. And that, I think, partly is because he's so dependent on having some some kind of source of, of legitimacy and support for his political program. It's got to come from somewhere. You actually cannot govern alone. You can say that on the campaign trail, but you can't do it. So I think this gets us really nicely to a related concern and certainly related problem or a problem for the administration and for Congress, which is just the fact that it's September and outside of the bureaucratic um, and executive orders, they Republicans really haven't been able to accomplish anything. They're, in a real sense, they they can't seem to govern. And I wonder how you see the relationship between Trump's, as you put it, awkward outsider outsiderdom and the Republican, the Congressional Republican Party's sort of inability to push through agenda items, even those for which there seems to be at least ideological agreement. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I've been, you know, I've, I've been wrestling with the ideological point a lot. Um, and I've moved a little bit on that issue since some of the stuff I wrote in the summer. One of the questions I've been wrestling with a lot is why is the Republican Party so ideologically cohesive and yet so seemingly divided? And then, you know, what I, I was recently talking to some other political scientists, and they kind of reminded me of this, you know, the Tuesday group and some of the more moderate perspectives in the Republican Party. So I've moved a little bit on that ideological divide, but still much more divided parties have, have done much more than this, right? Um, and so some of that has to do with institutional changes in Congress that have been really that have pushed the parties toward kind of showboating um, over their positions and trying to make the other party look bad rather than kind of like behind-the-scenes deal-making. People have a really bad perception of behind-the-scenes deal-making. It sounds sketchy in every way, but in fact, it's it's quite useful sometimes in terms of getting things done. This is just just one of my like, this is one of my my favorite personal hot takes. (laughs) The smoke-filled room is not actually all that terrible. Yeah, I mean, I I, want to point out the smoke-filled room, um, you know, neither you nor I would have been in a lot of those smoke-filled rooms, right? (laughs) 
So um, we need to have a room for smoke-filled rooms that also includes people who aren't just, you know, white dudes. So that model isn't quite going to work either. But there is, a, you know, the, the move toward more congressional transparency in the 1970s in some ways really took a lot of power out of what congressional committees could do. And so I think that's, you know, that's part of the story is, is congressional process. But there's a couple of things. And I think the other thing is that it kind of comes from Republicans being at this very end of um, what I think is probably the end of a kind of Reagan cycle. And that is the, the idea that Reagan came out with that government is the problem was really potent and was kind of a lot of people felt the right idea for the early 80s. But it seems like it's not quite the idea that addresses some of the main issues that people are facing today, like inequality or issues with the climate. Those are very controversial, of course, but it seems like there's growing there's a growing sense that we need some new other set of, of ideas. And that, I think, contributes to the fact that many items in the Republican agenda are not terribly popular. And you sort of see this in the tension between Trump's President Trump's rhetoric on occasion and then the governing agenda he signed on to. And this, I mean, this to me is really striking with healthcare, where at the beginning of the year, he gave an interview with the Washington Post where he said that he would, healthcare reform under his administration would provide, you know, more and better healthcare at cheaper prices, right? That's sort of probably would never happen, but it was, it was a verbal commitment to sort of a more expansive health agenda than simply repealing the Affordable Care Act and replacing it with some sort of like, you know, attempt to go to the status quo uh, ex ante. But obviously as president, he has very much signed on to exactly that, that the, the Republican pledge to repeal and replace Obamacare with something less expansive, less comprehensive. And it, it feels like, or it seems that part of the awkwardness here is you have a, a president um, who in some ways both reflects the, the, the changing shape of the coalition as much as, much as he is relying on, on the last gasp of the old coalition, but the party itself can't really integrate that ideologically or or politically, and so it's 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 at a standstill. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think part of this came from how much you know. I think one of the one of the piece one of the ideas that sort of inspired the five thirty eight piece that I was writing about was, man, Republicans are really good at being a minority party. Um, they really they really nailed what a minority party needs to do, and so when they were. You know, and they were out of the White House under Obama, and particularly during that 2010 period in between when the Affordable Care Act was passed in the spring and when the midterm elections happened in November. They made a, you know, tremendously political, uh, powerful political movement, almost like, you know, too powerful that took over party leaders kind of lost control of their party with the Tea Party and this idea that big government is unconstitutional. It's taking your resources, giving them to people who are not like you, which is another topic. And, you know, that's a really powerful, clearly that's a really powerful political idea when you're in the minority. It's a much more challenging idea when you're in the majority. And as you pointed out, when you have a president who ran from outside the party and who's made all these, and it's not just healthcare, a lot of governing promises that, you know, people aren't, people will not be needy anymore. There won't be homeless people on the street. Everything will be clean. This, there were a lot of governance promises made during the the course of the debates. And that's very hard to square with a party that has been campaigning for, for seven years on anti-government and specifically anti-federal government 
intervention. Right. It's um, I mean, there there is no real way to square it. And so part of me, I mean, part of me wonders if I mentioned earlier that it's September and, and Republicans haven't really accomplished anything legislatively, if that's just going to continue in part because it's not in addition to. President Trump not having a, a deep investment in sort of the details of legislation and, and policymaking, um, in addition, sort of divisions within the Republican Party. There's sort of no this this message divide means there's no real kind of coordination or cohesion between the, the White House and Congress in a way that could smooth things over for for passing legislation. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. I think there are some there's some unanswered questions about just how influential presidents can be in this regard. Um, I, you know, as a thought experiment, you think about what if we had elected a Republican president who was really experienced in in governance, who was really experienced in speech making while in office, not just holding election rallies, um, which Trump is clearly very effective at. Um, you know, whether someone who could really finesse this and say, here's how this actually squares with conservative ideals and you know, kind of explain it and maybe behind the scenes work on brokering deals. Like, is any president really that effective or that powerful? I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that this this situation is not the, you know, is not that. Um, you've got a president who doesn't have a lot of experience governing, who doesn't have, um, you know, a lot of experience making these kinds of governance speeches um, or doing the you know, he he talks about the deal, but not really, you know, he doesn't have experience doing that in the context of, of Congress. So it's a little different. And I think that it's possible that a, a person with more kind of conventional political skills could have pulled that off. But it's not totally obvious to me that that's true either. We've been speaking to Julia Azari, a professor of political science at Marquette University and a contributor to 538 and Vox.com. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That is the show for today. Before we take off, are you following Trumpcast on Twitter? We're on there as at RealTrumpcast. And guess what? We are closing in on 10,000 followers. Be our 10,000th follower. There is no prize for this, of course, but it's pretty cool. So help us out. A special thanks to John Domenico, our voice of Donald Trump since the very beginning. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon with an assist from Afim Shapiro today. Thanks, Afim. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast. Cast.